Good morning. It's good to see you here this morning. I'm glad you did not give way to despair. Contrary to uh, expectations, the sun did rise this morning, though there is very little joy in Mudville. I'd like to invite you to turn, please, to the 17th chapter of the book of Judges. Judges chapter 17. I feel a little bit sorry for you newcomers this morning having to jump right into the middle of this portion of this uh, Old Testament book. There are some shocking elements here, but I should tell you that's precisely the purpose of this section, to shock our sensibilities. I mentioned uh, when we first began this book that it divides into three very clear, discrete uh, sections. The first is uh, a sort of preamble and precy of the book. It gives us the outline, the pattern that the, uh, that the author will follow. He traces a series of cycles of sin and servitude, and then salvation. Israel does what is sinful in God's eyes, as the author puts it. Uh, They are then sold into subjection, uh, submission to their uh, enemies, and uh, they cry out to God for deliverance, and he saves them. Then in the central section of the book, from chapter 3 on through verses, uh, through chapter 16, Uh, we have the accounts of the various judges that God sent to save Israel. And the problem, as we have seen over and over again in the stories of these these men and women, is that they could not solve the problem because they were themselves part of the problem. They were idolaters and sensualists, and uh, they had a hard time getting their own lives together, much less trying to help someone else get theirs together. Each one seems to be worse than the one before. And with Samson, an era comes to a close. There are no more judges. Uh, when Ray Stedman was here a couple of weeks ago for an IMM conference, he told a story that really tickled me about a pastor that received a visit from a man in the town where he served who asked him to bury his brother. And uh, the pastor was alarmed because he knew the brother's a notorious scoundrel. Uh, always uh, ripping people off and totally untrustworthy individual. But he didn't see any problem with uh, burying the fellow. But uh, the man said, I, I want you somewhere in the service to call him a saint. And the pastor said, I, I can't do that. This guy's unscrupulous. I can't call him a saint. The man said, well, if you call him a saint, I'm willing to give $25,000 to your building program. So the pastor said, well, let me think about this a little bit. <clears throat> Next day, he called him up and said uh, he would do it. So the day of the funeral occurred. Uh, the pastor got up and said, I just have to say, this, this was the meanest man in town. He was unscrupulous in his business dealings. Nobody liked him. He was probably the most hated and feared man in the whole town. But compared to his brother, he's a saint. And uh, I feel that way about these judges. Uh, <laughs> compared to their successors, each one was, uh, was a saint. 
There wasn't a single judge who could deliver. And then we come to the last portion of the book, chapter 17 through 21, in which he traces something of the spirit of that age. He actually takes us back in time to the very beginning of the era of the judges, right after the conquest. And he tells us what life was like internally. There are some significant omissions. No mention of a judge, not one. No mention of any foreign dominating force. Everything seems to be within. The decadence, the corruption is, is within the nation and within the, the, the human heart. No reference to this phrase, Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. You get it portrayed in living color. It tells us what that evil looks like, but it doesn't editorialize at all. But there's one very significant addition. There's this phrase, there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Uh, that phrase occurs in uh, chapter 17, verse 6. In chapter 18, verse 1. Uh, in chapter 20, uh, pardon me, chapter 21, verse 25. There's one other reference that I'm missing I think it's in chapter 19. But there are five places where that phrase occurs. There was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Now, I mentioned before that I think the theme of this book is simply that. There was no ruler, no one worthy of the name of king or leader who could deliver Israel. The judges were inept and adequate. They couldn't do it. And what this judge does is set us up for the king who is coming. And we'll see who that is in a moment. Now, this final uh, section, chapter 17 through 21, is a series of narratives, actually two appendices. And the first of these narratives uh, concerns a young man by the name of Micah, not the prophet uh, who wrote in the prophetic section of the Old Testament, but uh, another individual. Let's begin reading with uh, verse 1 of chapter 17. And there was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. The hill country of Ephraim is a large geographical area between the southern half of the nation of, uh, of, the, of the country of Israel uh, from the tribal allotment to Benjamin and Judah north all the way to the... To the uh, plains of Israelon. It's quite a large area. We're not told exactly where this man Micah lived, but somewhere in that hill country he resided. And we're told his name. His name is Micah. Now the interesting thing about the mention of his name is that the writer uses the long form of his name. There are two ways to say Micah in Hebrew. One is to say Micah. That's just the short form for, for Micah. And the other is to say Mikayahu, which is the longer proper name, formal name. Interestingly enough, the long form of his name name occurs in the first couple of verses, and then he drops off to the shorter form as though he wants to underscore the meaning of his name. Actually, his name is a question. Me, who is like God, who is like Yahweh? The answer to which is not this guy. (laughs) He is anything but like God. Very unlike God. And uh, we'll see what that looks like as we, uh, as we trace his story. 
He said to his mother, The eleven hundred pieces of silver which were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse in my hearing, behold, the silver is with me. I took it, and his mother said, Blessed be my son, uh, blessed be, uh, blessed be my son by the Lord. This uh, young man stole from his mother. She was uh, apparently a widow. Nothing is said of his of his father, single parent, trying to raise this young man by herself, and uh, he ripped her off. Stole her nest egg, $25,000 that she was dependent upon. Justice being what it was in those days, the courts as corrupt as they were, she didn't expect to get any justice from the legal system, so she uh, resorted to the time-honored uh, custom of cursing the thief in his presence. Again, the text underscores the idea that she did it in his, uh, in his presence, probably, probably because she had her own suspicions about who, who stole the money. She knew what kind of boy she had on her hands. So uh, fearful that the curse would light on him, he gave the money back, all 1,100 pieces of silver, $25,000. She took a fifth of it, made a little idol. Uh, not so tall, probably, five, seven pounds in, in weight. And blessed the boy to overthrow the curse. So the boy set up his own uh, sanctuary. This is all in chapter 5, a number of irregularities about this uh, worship. In the first place, it's idolatry, which is, as you know, forbidden in the Old Testament. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make no graven images. First commandment. Uh, Secondly, the book of Deuteronomy says you shall not worship images in secret. They were not to have a little sanctuary that was hidden away in their homes where they practiced idolatry. Furthermore, he set up a whole pantheon of gods. He had a carved image and a graven image uh, that is something that was uh, poured. And uh, he had an ephod, that's a little priestly vest. The, the priests in that day wore a uh, sort of like a, a sleeveless jacket, ephod it was called, that indicated their priestly office. They made one of those, even though they were already priests down at Shiloh. And um, he installed his son as a, as a priest. His son wasn't even a Levite. He was of the tribe of Ephraim. So this was a bogus worship. The whole thing was, was terribly wrong. All sorts of, of evil going on. And uh, the editor just tells us the story, doesn't, doesn't editorialize, doesn't make any moral judgments. He just lets us make up our own mind. This is a kind of jury-rigged religion, man-made religion, that Micah threw together, a place where he could worship on his own in his own way without reference to God. You don't see God, the Lord God of Israel, anywhere in this false worship. Now, uh, the problem, of course, to Micah was that he had the wrong priest. He had a bogus priest, and he needed a Levite to uh, sanction this false worship. And uh, fortunate for him, he stumbled across a young man from Bethlehem, verse 7, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite. The Levites were the clergy, and he was staying there in Bethlehem. The word suggests that he was a stranger, which would indicate that he was unsupported and homeless, which in itself would be wrong unless there was some reason why he had, had it, why he had his support taken away from him. I suspect he was a corrupt priest. 
The Israelites supported the Levites. They weren't required to maintain their own fields and support themselves. They were paid for out of the temple of the tabernacle treasury and uh, supported by the gifts of people in the towns where they served. But this man uh, was not supported. Yeah, he may very well have been a corrupt uh, priest who had been defrocked. But uh, Micah accepted him as his priest. Micah said to him, dwell with me and be a father and a priest to me, and I'll give you ten pieces of silver a year, a suit of clothes, and your maintenance. So the Levite went in, and the Levite agreed to live with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. So Micah consecrated the priest, installed him as his own priest, and the young man became his priest and lived in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know the Lord will prosper, prosper me, seeing I have a Levite as a priest. The man was a rabbit's foot. That's all he was. Good luck. See, Very often uh, you come across people that never give God the time of day, but they want to have a church wedding because somehow you've got to have God involved somewhere along the line to sort of sanction this thing a little bit. I, Recall years ago, Carolyn and I went to a Barbara Mandrell concert. She sang all these songs about lust and longing and adultery and hopping in and out of beds. And and then she ended by saying, I want to give credit where credit is due to the one who makes it possible. And she sang, Just a Closer Walk with Thee. Sort of God putting his imprimatur on this whole uh, sordid mess. And that's that's what this man was doing, just sort of dragging God in by the hair. He had no real interest in centering on God and making God really significant in his life. He just, want God to, he just want, wanted God to, to bless what he had put together. He sort of made this worship and then brought it into God for the laying on of hands is what it amounted to. Now, you, you begin to get the picture. Everything is highly irregular. This is not worship that was sanctioned by the law. Lawless. Worship, man-made worship. Now, uh, the story shifts to the Danites, um, chapter 18, verse 1. In those days there was no king of Israel, and in those days the tribe of the Danites were seeking an inheritance for themselves to live in. For until that day, uh, an inheritance had not been allotted to them as a possession among the tribes of Israel. Now, what had happened is the Philistines had pushed him into a little piece of land that was far smaller than they required for their tribe, so they they needed extra space. But instead of staying put and expecting God to enlarge their coasts, as he had promised each tribe, they fled. They went looking for another, another piece of land. And uh, they sent five spies first to spy out the land to see uh, what was available. Verse 2, the sons of Dan sent from their family five men, and they stumbled across the house of Micah as they were making their way north. They were traveling from the south, the area very close to where the story of Samson took place. That's where the Danites were located. Just, Just north of the tribe of Benjamin, just a little bit north of Jerusalem, and they're traveling up toward the north, and they go through the hill country of Ephraim, and they chance by the house of Micah. And they hear the priest chanting, and they recognized his voice. They'd had some contact with him before when he was down in Bethlehem. So they drop in to become uh, reacquainted. Then they say, who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What do you have here? I'm reading verse 3. 
And he said to them, Thus and so has Micah done to me, and he's hired me, and I've become his priest. And they say, Hey, inquire of God, please, that we may know whether our way on which we're going will be prosperous. So he trots out his little ephod, and he puts it on, and uh, he, he gives them a reading. He says, It's all right. God will prosper you. He's on your side. He absolutely was not. But it um, didn't matter to them. They had the Lord's approval. And the five men departed and came to Laish, and they saw the people who were in it living in security after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and secure, quiet and secure, for there was no ruler humiliating them for anything in the land. They were far from the Sidonians and had no dealing with anyone. Uh, if you look at a map of Israel, you see a little finger that sticks up to the north into Syria and a portion of Lebanon. It's called Matula. It's a Hebrew word for finger. That's where Laish is located, right at the extreme tip of that uh, finger. It's where modern-day Dan is located if you visited that particular site. About as far away from central, uh, the central portion of the land as you could get. People are in a valley up there. Off to the west is the Lebanon Range, and off to the east is uh, the bulk of Mount uh, Hermon. So they were cut off from both the Syrians and the Phoenicians, and they were living in peace, and nobody was fooling with them. They weren't, they weren't a problem to anybody. They weren't causing any trouble. They weren't part of the people that uh, the Israelites had to uh, uh, d- dispossess. Uh, they were just living up there, minding their own business. And these spies saw this place, Laish, and they said, that's for us. And they went back and, and unanimously gave a good report, gathered up as many of their tribesmen as they could, 600 armed men and uh, their wives and children, probably two to 3,000 people. And they sat out on foot to migrate north to Dan. Bivouac first in this place called uh, Mahanaim Dan. That's not the same place uh, that we read about last week where Samson lived, but it simply means the camp of Dan, their, their encampment there left, uh, left that name behind. And they passed from there to the hill country of Ephraim, verse 13, came to the house of Micah. And as they were coming by, the five men who had originally been sent to spy out the country said to the rest of this, uh, this armed uh, group, consider what you shall do. Thinly veiled suggestion there. There's, there's something we need to take care of at this place. And uh, they turned aside and came to the house of the young man, the Levite, to the house of Micah, and they asked of his welfare. And, and the 600 men took up their positions outside the gate and the five men who went to spy out the land went up and entered there and took the graven image and the ephod and the household gods and the molten image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the 600 men armed with weapons of war. And when these went into Micah's house and took the graven image, the ephod, and household gods the molten, and the molten image, the priest said to them, What are you doing? Uh, kind of a feeble attempt to put a stop to this. And they said, Be quiet. Put your hand over your mouth. Come with us. Be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or to be a priest to a tribe and a family in Israel? And, and the priest's heart was glad, and he took the ephod and household idols and the graven image and, and went among the people. No thought to the kindness that Micah had extended, had extended to him. He just got a better deal, that's all, a better offer. More people to minister to, uh, more money. To make more power, more prestige, and so he purloined all the idols, gathered them all up, all the the implements of worship that Micah had accumulated, 
gathered them up and went off with the tribe of Dan. The sad story continues. Micah tried to intervene. He overtook them. He had smaller, much more mobile force, and he overtook them on the way. They turn on him, verse 23, they cried to the sons of Dan, who turned around and said to Micah, what's the matter with you? And he said, listen to this, would you? You've taken away my gods, which I made, and the priest, and have gone away, and what do I have beside? So how can you say to me, what's the matter with you? In other words, this, this has cosmic significance in my life. You took away the gods I made. that's precisely the way the Old Testament looks at idols idolatry is taken very seriously idols are spoofed prophets make fun of them they ridicule absurdity of making something out of metal and then worshipping how ridiculous it is to believe in a a car or something that's designed for obsolescence and yet we do it all the time we invest our lives in these things and we think they have ultimate significance and they come and go and they pass away and here we are eternal creatures investing ourselves in in things that uh, will hardly outlast this decade the things that we've made with our hands Uh, incidentally this author mocks Micah at every turn beginning with the meaning of his name and right on through his spurious worship and his attempts to try to put together this this strange worship, and even the statement uh, to his son, you be a father to me, all of this intended is intended to ridicule, mock uh, this, this man. And now finally he ends up with the Danites presiding over their, their idolatrous worship. Now uh, the story continues. They um, besieged the city of Laish, struck it with the edge of the sword, massacred the inhabitants, burned the city with fire. And they called the name of the city Dan after the name of Dan, their father, who was born in Israel. They named the city after the father of their tribe, Dan, the uh, son of uh, Jacob. And uh, you probably noticed in the Old Testament when the writers are referring to the northern and southern boundaries of the land of Israel, they say from Dan to Beersheba. Dan is the most nor- is the northernmost city, and Beersheba is the farthest to the south. And this became now the capital city of the tribe of Dan, uh, up in the uh, up in the north. Now we're told in verse thirty that the sons of Dan set up for themselves the graven image. Contrary to everything that the law required and commanded, they worshiped this graven image. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, he and his sons were priests to the tribes of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. This is a masterful storyteller. Have you noticed he does not give us the name of this young man until the very end? Normally you have the pedigree of these people at the very beginning, but he withholds that to the end because it's very, very significant. His name is Jonathan. That's not too significant. There was another Jonathan that was the uh, friend of David, Saul's son. It's not that Jonathan. Uh, It is significant, though, that he's described as the son of Gershom, 
who was the son of Moses. And yet this text says that Gershom was the son of Manasseh. But if you look in the side note of your Bibles, if you have an NASB or an NIV, you will have Moses in the side note. And this is why. Moses belongs in the text, not Manasseh. Manasseh was a king who lived much later. The scribes changed the text. There's no question about that. This is one of only two or three places in the entire Old Testament where the scribes tampered with the text. But because they revered the text so much, they made it very clear that we understand that they tampered with the text. If you read through a, a, you get a Hebrew Bible and read through it, you discover that there's a special notation right over this word. The N sound is, is placed over the line. Uh, grammarians refer to it as supra, uh, supralineal in. Let me explain what's going on. There are no vowels in Hebrew, at least in the ancient form. They put vowels in much later, about Jesus' time. Just consonants. If you transliterate the Hebrew vowel, uh, Hebrew consonants into English consonants, the name of Moses would be M-S-H. That's what you would find in the text. Manasseh's name would be M-N-S-H. Now, when the scribes got to this point and they read... Jonathan was the son of Gershom, the son of Moses. They couldn't handle it because it meant that Moses' grandson, Moses, the giver of the law, was the corrupt priest who presided over this horrific uh, false worship up in Dan. They couldn't handle it. So they said, "There's, there's got to be a mistake And so they just arbitrarily added an N to change the name of Manasseh. But there's no question that it should be M-S-H, Moses, Moshe. Jonathan was the son of Gershom, the son of Moses. And what this shows us is that within one generation of Moses, you have this kind of corruption in Israel. And it continued on and on and on, he says, until the time of the captivity, until the Assyrians in 722 destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. And they did so, as the, as the writers tell us, because of the rival worship center that Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, set up in Bethel and in Dan. When uh, Jeroboam, you, you may not know all of this uh, biblical history, Jeroboam was the man that split the nation of Israel into two parts. He took the northern kingdom off the ten northern tribes, formed a separate uh, nation from them, and to keep his people from going down south to worship God at Jerusalem, he set up two idolatrous worship centers, one in Bethel and one in Dan. And the prophet said, that is the means by which Jeroboam caused Israel to sin. And uh, one of the places where where they sinned was, was right here in in Dan, this, this terribly corrupt uh, place of, of worship. Now, what, what's the point of this whole story? Why, why does he drag out all this dirty laundry? This is just one, one story, could have been hidden away. Why does he have to tell us this awful stuff? Well, it's to underscore that statement. There's no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes, even to the extent of just putting together a man-made religion and saying this is what God wants and sanctifying it in in spurious uh, ways. And as you're going to see next week, it gets not better, but worse. Because not only are they corrupt in their worship, but they are utterly, absolutely corrupt 
in their morality. In fact, you, this is one of the most difficult passages to preach on because it is so awful. People read this and say, what is this doing in the Bible? Well, it's here because God is ultimately realistic. He's the ultimate realist. You know, he's absolutely realistic about life. And this is what happens to people when they don't have a king. That's the point. This is the extent to which we go when we don't have a Lord. We will trash our lives. We will corrupt our religion. We will destroy our minds. We will tear up our bodies if we don't have a king. We've got to have a king. That's the point. We were made to be ruled. And if we're not mastered, if we're not ruled, we become very, very unruly. That's the point. Now, let, 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 me, uh, let me give you a little bit of Old Testament theology. We have ten minutes. Don't panic. <clears throat> it's going to be very quick. Okay? Genesis 3 records the fall of man. Adam's sin plunged the whole human race into sin. God set about immediately to put things right. Moses, uh, quoting God, who is speaking to the serpent, says, I'm going to put enmity between your seed, the serpent's seed, and the seed of the woman. He, the seed of the woman, he will crush your head. You will bruise his heel. Very vivid picture of the cross. The seed of the woman, some man born someday, it's all very indefinite, is going to stamp on the head of the serpent, put an end to the problem that's plagued us in the very beginning, but in so doing he's going to hurt himself. Very vivid picture of the cross. Terrible pain that was inflicted upon our Lord when he once for all trampled on the head of the serpent. Right there in Genesis 3, first three chapters of the book, manifest the love of God. Uh, that promise is reiterated to the patriarchs, to Abraham. He was told one of his descendants would be the seed that was promised. Then to Isaac, who is Abraham's son. Then Jacob, who is Isaac's son. And then you come to one of Isaac's, or Jacob's sons, whose name is Judah, who was the head of the tribe of Judah, the royal tribe, the kingly tribe, the tribe from which all the, the rulers of, it, uh, of Judah came. And... Uh, Interesting statement is made to Judah. He says, the scepter will not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. Now, the scepter is uh, the symbol of rule. It's the first reference that I know of in the Old Testament. That the man who was to come, the seed of the woman who would set things right, would be a king. He would wield a scepter. And uh, Judah has promised that she will continue as a tribe... She would hold the scepter of kingship until the great king comes. The king that was promised in Genesis 3. Shiloh, he's calling. We don't know exactly what that, what that word means. There's a cognate uh, term in, in one of the Babylonian languages that means a counselor. Someone that gets people together that are having a hard time getting along and helps them reconcile their differences. And that may be what the term means. That this is someone who, who sets things right, who reconciles broken relationships and men's broken hearts. The wonderful counselor, as Isaiah puts it. That's the king who is to come. 
And so they waited. They kept waiting for the king, waiting for the king. And you have this sad, sorry period of the judges where everybody did what was right in their own eyes. The judges couldn't deliver them. They were just part of the problem, as I said. And they kept waiting for a king. There's no king. There's no king. When's the king coming? Interestingly enough, in Egyptian literature, dated just about the same time, they too are asking, where's the shepherd? Where's the king? As shepherd is a word is used in the ancient Near Eastern world for a king. Where's the prince to come? Who's going to set everything right? The whole world was waiting and waiting and waiting, and there was no king, no king, and things were getting worse and worse and worse. And you come to the book of Samuel, and all right, they appoint a king. It's this uh, fellow Saul who vividly illustrates Lord Acton's axiom that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolute. This guy went crazy. He went stark, raving mad. All of his power went to his head. He wasn't the king. Well, it must be David. He was the best of all the kings. Now, he was a violent, sometimes cruel man, adulterer, liar. He's always getting himself in trouble. He was a wonderful man when he acted in faith, but he could be a terrible man when he acted in the flesh, and he wasn't the one to come, and he knew it. He knew it. There was one occasion when Nathan, he and David, Nathan was a prophet that ministered to David, and they were, they were chatting over things, and David said, I think I want to build a house for God. Nathan said, no. God didn't want you to build a house for him. He wants to build you a house. God's lived in a tent from the very beginning. He doesn't need a house. He wants to build a house for you. Nice little turn of phrase, little play on words. I'm going to build you a dynasty. That sort of house. And God said to David, your house will continue before me forever. And one day a king will will sit on the throne who will rule over Israel forever. Now, it wasn't Solomon, he died. It wasn't Rehoboam, he died. It wasn't Abijah or Asa or Jehoshaphat or any of the other kings that, that followed David. They all died. That's not the king that would, that would reign forever. And the, and the prophets knew it. They knew it. The Psalms are full of it. David said, they, or Jesus said, they saw my day. See, they were looking forward to the coming of, of the king of Israel who would, who would rule forever. Uh, Psalm 89 is an interesting example. It was written by a man who was a Canaanite. He's described as, as an Ezraite, which is a word in Hebrew for an aborigine. He was a Canaanite that had become a believer, had been led to a relationship to Israel's God the impact of the nation. So he wrote this beautiful psalm in which he says, I'm going to sing about it. The sun came up this morning. That means the deal is still on. God promised David that as long as there was a sun and a sky and a moon in the sky and there were stars, that he would someday send a king who would set things right. The sun came up this morning. Everything is all right, he says. That's something to sing about. And uh, the world waited and Waited and waited until the baby was born. Uh, that's something that we're inclined to forget. Christmas is coming up and we're already caught up in the, in the world of buying and doing and getting ready for Christmas. And we forget that that was the time when the king came. That's what the wise men said when they came from the east. Where is he who was born king of the Jews? They knew who he was. They knew. You remember the first time we took a look at the book of Judges, I said, Old Testament 
theologians often say that the king that's referred to in here, Judges, was the David in the line of Judean kings. And to a certain extent, that's true, because God was going to reign through, through these vice regents, through these kings who sat on the throne of Israel, who hopefully would embody justice and righteousness and would ennoble the nation and would lead people to God, would make them more godlike. But every one of them failed until you come to King Jesus. And here's the one who perfectly embodies righteousness and who leads us to God, who made a way for us to God through the cross and who ennobles our life as he teaches us to be more God-like, unlike Micah, who was anything but like God. That's the king who's to come. That's our king, the Lord Jesus. And one day he ambled into the city of Sychar and there was a young woman sitting by a well. She was a Samaritan. I have a friend who wrote his PhD paper on the religion of the Samaritans. I didn't know anything about that religion prior to talking to him. He was out here for an IMM conference and as we were flying around the state I asked him a number of questions and I found out some things about that religion I never knew before. That was the most debased, corrupted religion on one of the most debased, corrupted religions on the face of the earth at that time. It was sort of a combination of occultism and pagan worship and a few elements of Judaism and a bunch of other stuff just kind of clumped together. And uh, she was part of that religion, that false religion. And remember what she said to Jesus? She said, I, I think you're a prophet. Tell me. We worship up here on this mountain. Where, where do you folks you worship down there on, on, on that mountain down there, Mount Zion. Where do you think we ought to worship? Jesus said, doesn't matter. It's not where, it's who. And I'm the one. I'm the king. He said that to a woman, a Samaritan woman. He never said that to his disciples until much, much later. He didn't say that to any of his Jewish countrymen. He said that to a Samaritan woman. I'm the one you're looking for. Someone been desperately looking for something in this religion. She'd gone through one husband after another. She finally gave up on that. She was just living with men. and Jesus said, I'm the one you've been looking for. I'm the king. I'm the king, I tell you. I'm the one that came to set things right. Last Wednesday, Malcolm Muggeridge died. I don't know how many of you noticed that. He had a stroke about three years ago, and this wonderful old man of God went, went home. Um, if you know anything about Muggeridge, you know, kind of a caustic uh, social critic, you got everybody in England mad at him as well as the Queen. And, uh, and, and yet, uh, late in his life, he rediscovered Jesus. In fact, he even wrote a book by that name, Jesus Rediscovered. Uh, he wrote a later uh, biography, autobiography, which he called The Chronicles of a Wasted Life. And he talked about his search God and, and he, he tried everywhere to find God and, and finally he came back to Jesus. And uh, I want to read something he, he wrote. In the conclusion of his, of his book, Jesus Rediscovered, he said, So I came back to where I began, to that other king, one Jesus. To the notion that man's efforts to make himself personally and collectively happy in earthly terms are doomed to failure. 
He must indeed, as Christ said, be born again, be a new man, or he's nothing. So at least I have concluded, having failed to find any alternative proposition, as far as I'm concerned, it is Jesus or nothing. That's our option this morning. It's either Christ or nothing. He's the king, I tell you. There is no other king. We have the option this morning of uh, acknowledging our allegiance to that King of kings and Lord of lords. We've been doing that in our worship. Um, You do that as you just sit quietly there and you listen to the word preached, you respond to it. Some of you may have never made that decision to make Christ King and Lord of your life. You've been coming for some time, and you've been sitting there as an observer and listening, somewhat on the outside looking in. You've heard things that have intrigued you, and you've realized that there is, after all, a deep, deep hunger in your heart for something more, something that money and power and sex and all of the other things with which we try to fill up our lives just do not satisfy. And your problem is the problem of so many, there's no king. No king. But there is a king. It's King Jesus. And all you have to do is acknowledge his lordship, and he'll be your king forever. He'll seat himself on the throne of your life, and he'll begin to ennoble your life and begin to make you what what you long uh, to be. Now, we don't normally give evangelistic messages here on Sunday morning. It's not because we're not evangelistic. It's because of our philosophy of ministry. We gather as believers, by and large, in order to hear the word taught, to build ourselves up in the faith, as uh, Jude puts it, and then to go out and share the gospel with our friends out there because we believe that the most effective evangelism is done out in the neighborhood with your friends and neighbors and colleagues and and uh, the people that you associate with through the day, through friendship, love, open sharing of what Christ has meant to you, that that people are one to Christ. We we don't want you to invite your friends down here, so I have the joy of sharing the gospel with them. We want you to do that. So this is a little bit of a departure this morning. But I want to give you a chance. To receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord and King. Because I know there's some of you here who are on the outside looking in and longing for what, for what we've been talking about this morning. There's a man in my Wednesday morning class doesn't go to this church. He's not in this group. Came to see me last week. He's been in the Wednesday morning class for the last year. Came in and said, I've been listening. I've been learning. I want what the men in that class want. I want to know Jesus. And I'm sure there are people like that here. You just want to know Jesus. You want a king. Will you pray with me? Let's let's pray. And will you pray this simple prayer? Lord Jesus, thank you for coming. Thank you for dying for my sins to make a way to God. Thank you for coming to make me more like God. Begin at this moment to change my life so I can become more of what I want to be.
more of what God wants me to be. Thank you for becoming my King and my Lord. Amen. Paul said that uh, if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and you confess him with your mouth, you'll be saved. It's important, I think, to confess him, to let someone know. Perhaps the friend that brought you or maybe you want to come down front, talk to one of us. We're not going to sign you up for anything. It's not our purpose. We want to help you grow. That's all. But if you did make that decision to receive Christ as Lord, we, we do want to know who you are so we can help you get underway. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time of gathering and opportunity to worship you and as your subjects to acknowledge again your lordship in our lives. How much we need that mastery. What fools we become when we're not subject to your lordship. Lord, may we walk with you through every day, intent upon listening to your voice, following you, doing your will, whatever it costs us. We thank you for your spirit that enables us and ennobles us and gives us everything that we need to be loyal, faithful subjects of yours. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.